0: Get ready to geek out with two of the greatest minds in science today. In this episode of 92Y Talks, Harvard theoretical physicist Lisa Randall discusses her new book, Dark Matter and the Dinosaurs, with Bill Nye, you know, the science guy. The conversation was recorded in front of a live audience on October 27th, 2015 at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: Why did you write this book? You know, it's funny. Um so I've been doing particle physics, as you know, um, all my career. Um, you know, studying elementary particles, the basic elements of matter. And, it's, and and then I decided to write books about it when I decided I stuff to tell people. But you know, it's, it was really hard and really challenging to get these abstract ideas across. And one of the reasons I really enjoyed writing this book was the idea of connecting some of these very abstract ideas to very concrete things that we actually see going through—not just how the universe evolved, but how the, sol- the galaxy evolved, how the solar system evolved, even how life on Earth emerged and went extinct—and then so was sort you, of that's one track. Glib. I'm not done yet. That's per- so right, that- pretty good. <laughs> <glib. laughs> <laughs> uh, the universe evolved. Galaxy evolved. <laughs> Earth evolved. One track. Wait, yeah. wait, wait. And then, a, yeah. Would you <laughs> let you, let you let want fries this, with, that? This, with that? Yeah. Let me finish. This. So the other reason
0: mm-hmm.
1: was that. I think, you know, we're all really interested in what's happening on the planet today, you know, where it's going, the changes that are happening now. And I think when we think about that, it's really important to have a context to understand how we got here, what happened, how, how did the, like, what are all the different connections that led to what we have today and what are the elements that we need to preserve. So I think both of these things made me very excited about writing this book.
0: So That's I claim, I claim there's a question that everyone's asked. And if you meet somebody who says he or she has never asked this question, they're lying to you. Where did we all come from?
1: You know, I've never asked that question.
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) you have. Written three books about it. So so my understanding is uh, when I was young, people presumed that the universe was gonna expand and expand indefinitely, in a sense, asymptotically, Always expanding imperceptibly, never quite reaching an end. Then there were other people that ran around, it's going to collapse again like this. But in my lifetime, people found that it's accelerating, right? And this.
1: But well, the expansion is accelerating, yeah. which is even more
0: amazing. It is pretty amazing. And dark matter has a role in this.
1: So, you know, it's interesting. It's not quite dark matter. Um, so basically, you know, when, when Einstein first came up with his theory and other people figured out, you know, and this is relatively recently, you know, the 20th century.
0: Relatively recently.
1: That's, that's a good point. <laughs> you, no, you said it. Don't
0: come that's running to a me. Good point,
1: good point. Um, but people solved these equations for the cosmos, for the universe, and it looked like the solution led to an expanding universe. And that was kind of shocking, right? No one at that time had seen evidence the universe was expanding at all. I mean, so we're talking, you know, 100 years ago. So what's the, when he has an equation. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Let me me answer the question. When he has an equation, (laughs) how does it show that the universe is expanding? Oh, okay. Right. So you can actually make some assumptions about the universe being kind of uniform. So you can actually translate it into a fairly simple set of equations where there's only a few things. One is the expansion rate of the universe. And you can just solve the expansion rate of the universe in terms of the amount of energy that's there from that equation, from his equations. And when you do that, you find there there isn't a static solution. And, of course, everyone knows the story, or probably everyone in this educated audience knows the story, that, you know, he was disturbed by this. He thought the solution should be static and added this other term, which is now known as dark energy. So he thought, I'm going to try to make the equations lead to a static universe. And then, of course, realized afterward, when it was discovered the universe is expanding, That he should have have just stuck to his guns and allowed the universe to expand. But it's very interesting, though, because the equations not only tell you that it's expanding, but they connect the expansion rate to what's actually in the universe, which could be ordinary matter, it could be dark matter. As far as gravity goes, those are pretty much the same. They lead to the expansion, um, they lead the expansion to slow down. But there's this other term, this dark energy term, that's perfectly allowed that he had tried to put in and then took out. But that term actually leads to an acceleration of expansion. And when people first tried to look at what was going on in terms of this expansion, in terms of measuring it, um, they actually, you know, if you look at old textbooks, it says that they were going to measure the deceleration parameter. Exactly. That's exactly yeah. what we all thought in the 80s. And then they did the measurement, and they did it carefully enough that they realized the result was not what they expected. And, and you know, it's really fun to talk to them about because they were calling, there were two different groups. They're so like, looks like, you know, or you know, even within the group. It's like, really, this looks like it's leading to an expand, you know, acceleration of expansion. So how was it so detected? With supernovae? The first detection was actually had to do with supernovae. Because supernovae have a couple of advantages. I mean, one is that they're really bright. So you can actually do it. And you can look at the galaxy in which they, which they sit. And you can see the, how quickly they're receding. You see what the Hubble expansion And you can see that they were giving less light than you would expect, given where they were. And so basically, there had to be something that was going on. They had to be further away.
0: Were they were. redshifted also?
1: Right. Everything is redshifted okay. because everything is expanding. Right. That's so right. they were they ex- extra redshifted? Yeah. Essentially, they were extra redshifted. That's mm-hmm. what we were looking at. Yeah. Exactly. So this would be Saul
0: Perlmutter and his colleagues got a Nobel Prize. Yeah, and also president. Brian Schmidt,
1: mm-hmm. you know, and who, who also did this. And this
0: is in the 1990s?
1: Yeah, so it was relatively recently that I'll we discovered say, that. Yeah. And so the, and I just, I just want to be clear. Be I want to be clear that that's dark energy. It's not dark matter we're talking about now. So now we're we're talking about stuff that is a sidebar to the main theme.
0: Okay, the dark main dark theme matter. is dark matter.
1: Right. right. But this dark energy is important. It's there. The reason I don't like talking about it as much is because, yep, we found it, we know it's there. But theoretically we haven't really made much progress in understanding. Like, what's its source? I mean, there's no reason it shouldn't be there. The big question is, why does it have this particular amount? And we don't really know the answer to that. Dark matter, on the other hand, that's actual matter. It's It acts just like ordinary matter with respect to gravity. You
0: don't like the word dark matter, though.
1: Well, I would call it, you know, if I had my druthers, I would call it transparent matter.
0: If you were because, queen of the
1: forest. Look, I mean, most of you can see my jacket, right? It's dark. And it's dark because it absorbs light. So dark stuff interacts with light. Dark matter is defined by the property that it's matter that light just passes through. I mean, billions of dark matter particles are going through each second, and we don't know about it.
0: So you think they are particles?
1: Oh, yeah, that is an assumption. That's fair. That's totally fair. But I do think they are particles, and I think they're particles that just aren't made out of ordinary atoms. They're just different kind of particles.
0: So how would then, so these darkons, particles of dark. transparent Transparentons. Transparentons. Well, why not? Transparentons. So the transparentons are streaming through us like as the way neutrinos do, which is
1: another fabulous word. They actually interact even less than neutrinos, though. As far as we know. but No, we we actually know that they interact less than neutrinos with our stuff. What we don't know is whether they interact at all. So that's one of the things we want to find out. Does it have any interaction with us that we haven't seen yet?
0: So is it reasonable, then, that these neutrinos, these neutrinos, these darkons... (laughs) I was kidding. (laughs) Neutrinos, that's hilarious. Uh, That that these darkons are passing through us and they're sloshing around in this room and we just haven't come up with a way to detect them. Or is it that they're concentrated or or specifically not concentrated sort of the the way the sun... The the sun is concentrated matter. Is this stuff inherently unconcentrated? Does it repel itself? So
1: actually... Well that's a big question. Um, So one of the really interesting things about dark matter is you know like I like to think of it as like the unsung hero because basically you know we see the world through the lens of our eyes and so we focus on ordinary matter but dark matter not only is out there there's five times as much of it as there is ordinary matter and furthermore this very property that it doesn't interact with light allows it to collapse sooner. That is to say If you had ordinary matter, so in order to form structure, we start with this uniform universe with everything spread throughout smoothly. And there's little, little perturbations. And those perturbations, because of gravity, eventually lead some regions to become denser, some regions to become less dense. Let me finish. So so because of that, um, we can actually have collapse into structure like galaxies. Now the thing is that If you had light interacting, it just would wash it out. I mean, radiation doesn't collapse. Radiation just drives stuff away. So ordinary matter can't make very small structures because radiation would wash it away. But dark matter can collapse into the size of a galaxy. So dark matter actually plays a big role in our universe. It actually is what collapsed first. So in some sense, it's not a surprise that we see ordinary matter and dark matter in the same place because it was what set up the gravitational potential. It's like ordinary matter sort of hitchhiked along and sort of lit up those regions of dark matter collapse. So it would be very, very surprising to find out that there was no dark matter in this region because the whole theory of structure formation kind of hinges on this fact that dark matter and ordinary matter are collapsing together. All right, so five-sixths of everything. Matter, of matter, not of everything. uh, Yeah, okay, is
0: transparent, right? To us. To us. Then how would we find it? Well that is Or a you very good you claim you have
1: found it. You've seen evidence of it. Well, I didn't I personally have not seen much evidence. But um, but there is evidence of dark matter and the evidence is gravitational. Because even though an individual dark matter particle A darkon. If there are You know, if you call it a dark on, it does sound powerful. Like a dark gun sounds like something you'd put in a gun. So you know <laughs> so transparent on. That sounds a little wimpier. That's good. OK. A glass on. <laughs> I'm just going to call it dark matter for now, OK? okay right. Even though I don't like the name either. OK. So um, what was I saying? <laughs> so how would we go about finding it? Right, you've never right, seen, right. But okay. you've got so, big ideas. So even though an individual dark matter particle has very little effect and interacts with gravity, if you have a lot of dark matter, like the amount that we have in our galaxy, it has a huge gravitational effect. And why is that important? Well, it tells you, for example, how stars move. Because stars in our galaxy respond to the gravitational potential set up by the matter in the galaxy.
0: In other so, words, but, there, there's something drawing together that you can't, that's transparent, but is apparent when you measure the motion of these galaxies.
1: That's right. And, or measure the motion of stars in a galaxy or galaxies in a galaxy cluster. And it, if there was no dark matter and stuff was going that quickly, it would just fly away. Because there wouldn't be enough gravity... That just pulled mm. it back. So just looking at the velocities of stars, which is what Vera Rubin and Ken Ford did, as you know, in the 1970s, they realized there just wasn't enough visible matter around to account for it. So but this discovery goes
0: back earlier than that, right?
1: Well, you can call it discovery. It was proposed earlier, like in even in the 1930s. Yeah, uh, Fritz Vicky and actually Ortt, John Ortt did it. And actually of I the Ortt cloud? I found that actually someone, is, when I was in Sweden, someone claims that someone in Sweden did too. And they, they basically all measured... Um, not, not stars and galaxies, but galaxies and galaxy clusters. And they found again that the motion was faster than could be accounted for by the matter they saw. Now, of course, at that time, and even at the time of Rubin, it wasn't really clear. Like, I mean, look, there's a lot of stuff we don't see that's not dark matter. We don't see it because it's just not emitting enough light. So one of the hypotheses was just maybe there's just stuff like planets or Jupiters that we just don't see. So it was clear there was more matter than anyone was finding. But it wasn't clear it was a new, let's say, exotic form of matter, completely dissimilar to the matter we know.
0: Okay, this is... What you're talking about is out, way out there. But the book, the premise is that the ancient dinosaurs <laughs> were deeply affected by this transparent stuff.
1: hmm So, yeah, of course. Well, how do I connect? So, the, you know... No, it, I'm loving it.
0: It's cool, you guys. You, there's 20 in a carton.
1: Great gift. <laughs> it's cool. So, um... No, I, it's cool. I read it. <laughs>
0: it's really good. And it has a really nice cover too. The cover oh. is sexy. I gotta say. See, the, now look. the the This uh, bolide or meteoric thing um, is blasting the S. Yeah. And you know why it misses the V? Because it's black. Oh. See, it goes right through the, Z, the V. The definite so, article.
1: Um. Back to the dinosaurs. Back to the connection. Okay, so <laughs> sorry. So, uh. so you know, so all of, so the theory was sort of an excuse to be able to talk about all these different elements because you know the solar system and the cosmology. But the theory that my collaborators and I have is based on the idea that you know we make the, you know it's very funny the way we think about all these other forms of matter because we know the matter. In the standard model, we know our matter is really complex. We know there's different types of particles. There are quarks, there are electrons, particles that interact differently. Yet in the case of dark matter, we assume it's like all the same. All the dark matter is just either all interacting or all weakly interacting or all non-interacting.
0: All the transparons
1: are the same. Right. And we made the assumption, we said, you know, it's not an assumption, but we said, suppose that weren't true. Suppose it was just more like our matter and there was some small fraction that actually did have an interaction. Now, it could be that it interacts with our matter, or it could be it just interacts with our itself. Remember, dark matter obviously doesn't see our light. That's what we've been talking about. But maybe our matter doesn't see dark matter's light. Dark matter has its own light that we do not see. Its own energy. Um, no, just really light. It just exchanges its own dark light, dark photons. You know, it's its own type of light.
0: I was with you till you said, you know.
1: <laughs>
0: so these would be photons that, are, that we can't see, that aren't...
1: That we don't see. Our eyes don't interact with them. But dark matter does. Just like, what does that mean? It means that dark matter does carry charge, but not the charge that our matter carries. It's a different kind of charge. It's a charge that only the dark matter sees. And so if, if that's too confusing, just think about the fact that some small fraction of the dark matter could be different than most of the dark matter. And that small fraction could interact differently, it could behave differently, it could cluster differently, it could form structure differently. And in particular, it could actually form a disk like the Milky Way disk, even a thinner, narrow disk in the midplane of the Milky Way. So it could be that, in addition to the dark matter that surrounds us in this enormous spherical halo that we do know about, there maybe is also a dark matter disk. So I have a
0: 45 RPM record inside an upside down Frisbee.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: OK. A white for
1: although I'd say it's 33 because it really is as big as the for oh it is oh it's as big
0: as the... yeah it's oh, yeah. narrower
1: but it's as big so and we form this a, shows how old we are it's kind of embarrassing
0: so <laughs> um, yes, I remember so uh, these things form a disk because there's uh, discontinues are in it. it's uh, it's not even the matter is not pulled together evenly from every direction so it, right so just
1: up, actually it is but then what happens is some of the matter, that has a means of radiating. Why do we have? I mean, why do we have a Milky Way disk? We have a Milky Way disk because ordinary matter can lose energy. It can lose energy because it can radiate. And because it can radiate, it cools down. And when it cools down, it means it doesn't move around as much, and it ends up like the gas ends up in this disk. If dark matter, this at least a small amount of dark matter, similarly radiates, then it too can form a disk. It could be this thin, narrow disk in the midplane of the Milky Way, and that would be incredibly interesting. Because it means that the gravity from the galaxy could, would be different, which could be reflected in the motion of stars, and it could be reflected in what happens to our star, our star, the sun. So the sun goes around the galaxy. As it does so, how it bo- long does that take? It takes about 240 million years. I'll see you at the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it bobs up and down through the plane of the Milky Way as it does so. That's a much shorter time period.
0: It has a wobble or nutation?
1: It's not really... It's, yeah, it just, it's just an oscillation up and down. It just oscillates up and down a little bit as it goes around. And that's more like 30 year, 30 million years. And so what we propose is that every time it goes through the dark matter disk, there's extra tidal gravitational force. Now, the other thing you have to know is that in our solar system, there's actually something called the Oort cloud, which is really far away. It's the, in some sense the edge of the solar system. It's like 50,000 times further away than the Earth is from the sun. And so therefore, because it's so far away, it's very, the stuff there is very weakly, gravitationally bound to the sun. But still bound to the sun, it even is still at bound. that crazy distance. Right? It's still bound, but it would be much more susceptible to some other perturbation. So if there's mm-hmm. some other force that acts on it, then it won't be bound in principle. And so our proposal is that every time it goes through the disk, stuff gets kicked out. So comets, in particular, can get kicked out of the Oort Cloud, and one of them, could be the one that's on the cover of my book. So, if that was 66, ancient dinosaurs were knocked out 66 million years ago. And two-thirds of the species on the planet, not just dinosaurs. Yeah. No. It was yeah. a mass extinction. It's kind of a big
0: de- day. Yeah? It was a big it's day. It's like Control-Alt-Delete. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and, you know, and then, and then they pro- probably make a TV series about it now. Like, you
0: know, <laughs> so let me ask you this, just I'm survive. thinking out louding, If we're wobbling or or whatever we're doing as the sun's passing through this dark disk, this transparent disk, aren't we, like, right around one of the nodes? Like, 2 times 30 is 66? Yeah, so
1: actually, fortunately, we're in the right direction, on the right side of history, um, because about 2 million years ago, we passed through. Mm -hmm. So we probably won't be passing through for another 30 million years
0: but uh, there's still 100,000 Earth-orbit-crossing asteroids and so on, right?
1: Oh, well, there's a lot of um, asteroids. It depends on what size you want to talk about. So if you talk about ones that are bigger than a kilometer, there's only about 1,000. And they're not all Earth-crossing. There's, like, near-Earth asteroids. And if you go down to smaller sizes, and so we have to distinguish, you know, and I talk a lot about this, like what are the things that could hit the Earth and, you know, and what, what's out there. And, of course, we have a limited knowledge, but we can see that, obviously, there's a lot more small stuff, a lot less big stuff, Big stuff hits a lot less frequently. Small stuff hits all the time. You know, you know, 50 tons of, you know, there's just tons of asteroids. Yeah, 100,000 tons at a night. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of stuff that comes in meteoric material.
0: So have you ever put a sheet out? Has anybody done this? Put a sheet out at night uh, and you come out and there's be dust and you can get a magnet and pick up uh, cosmic dust if, you know, you're inclined uh speaking of so you're a cosmologist
1: right i'm a particle theorist and a cosmologist yes
0: so in the book you mentioned <laughs> i'm gonna be embarrassed now. okay yeah no what do you mean no you mentioned the relation between cosmology and cosmetology which right. i thought was charming
1: <laughs> yes yeah because um yeah, actually, you know, I've been confused for that when I said cosmologist. And like when somebody says
0: astrology when they mean astronomy. Yeah, which it's is kind of a little embarrassing. Yeah.
1: But I thought, you know, that's kind of interesting. Like why do they sound so much alike? And so it's actually really cool because you look it up and it turns out they both kind of come, they're both talking about an underlying order. And so, you know, it's something that's kind of attractive and has an order. It's things that we find attractive. And so the universe as a whole, just like a face, be something that you just think of as very orderly and having this nice structure to it which i thought was quite lovely
0: actually yeah and you do you feel that way right
1: that the universe has order yeah well and well on is, a good day
0: yeah. <laughs> what does it what does it have on bad
1: days the republican debates <laughs> i see uh, <laughs>
0: Uh, but from an entertainment standpoint, <laughs> That's true. fascinating. Uh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of that, uh, you work in an area, you're academic, mm-hmm. right? And your work is funded by uh, an ac- academic institution, or is it funded another way?
1: Well, part of it is NSF funding, National Science Foundation funding, and some of it comes from Harvard money.
0: Do you uh, have concern that that funding is going to get cut?
1: Oh, I mean, whether it gets cut or not, I mean, it's clear the amount of money going into basic science is, at least the kind of science that I do, is going down. It's really very worrisome.
0: So what do you feel we should
1: do about it? Well, that is an excellent question. And if I was in a position to do something about it, I'd be very happy. But. Uh, um, I clearly think that we have to stop, I mean, and that's one, actually, in some indirect way, that's also one of the reasons I want to write this book, we have very short-term thinking. Even when we do fund science these days, we often think about it as applied science. You know, from, you know, I see medical research as applied. I mean, there's a lot of people that will say medical research is basic research, and in some sense it is. But if you think about it, you know, genetic research isn't the same as the discovery of DNA. No one was thinking about curing cancer when they were trying to identify the structure of DNA. They were just doing research. And, you know, that. but that, many years later, is what's leading to all sorts of developments. And so I think we just lose track of the importance of just basic research. not just, And, of course, actually doing the research and finding these results, but also what it does for people being curious about the world. I mean, that's certainly something that you, you know, speak to a lot. And, that you know, it's very important that this research is happening because it's one of the reasons we're around to be talking about it. And I do think just this general short-term will only do things that are in our best interest. I mean, you know, the iPad is great, but let's face it, it's just bigger than an iPod. You know, it's like, you know, it's not a basic revolutionary discovery despite the way we treat it because economically it has been. But, you know, and we really want to have basic discoveries like quantum mechanics that led to the electronics revolution. And those are the kinds of things we want to have, and I think we're in danger of losing that.
0: Yeah, so... If you were queen of the forest <laughs> uh, what would you what would you want to do next? What are you going to do next? What would you want funded from a basic research standpoint
1: Well, I mean obviously, I have the interest of the kind of work research that I do I mean I think there's a lot of particle physics and a lot of cosmological things that let me put it let me ask a specific question
0: is the uh, Hey, uh, the super the um, collider at CERN in Switzerland is it big enough?
1: That's a great question, and the answer is clearly no. Um, clearly
0: no, because yeah. there are people, obviously, other people, <laughs> who think that they can crank it up and get all the information you'd ever need out of it.
1: So let's okay. So we're now talking about particle physics and and particle colliders, and um, so let's just review what's going on there. So you have so you have these big rings, and and the reason it's big is not directly to have high energy. It's because in order to keep it in a ring, you need a magnetic field. And, you know, unless you have a really strong magnetic field, you can't keep it going. Now, if it's bigger, you don't need as big a magnetic field because if you think about it, a bigger ring, things aren't bending quite as much. So the bigger you can build the ring, the higher the energy you can have because of these indirect reasons. So around the time the LHC was being planned, the Large Hadron Collider, as you know, and probably some of you here know about, the Superconducting Super Collider was also planned. And that was a much bigger machine and would have had about three times the energy. Now, people were hopeful that the Large Hadron Collider would have high enough energy to resolve some outstanding issues in what we call the standard model of particle physics. But we've discovered the Higgs boson, but we haven't discovered other particles that might be there, like particles associated with extra dimensions of space or supersymmetric particles. There's other stuff that could be exciting that I've talked about in previous books. And I think it's also really interesting, but we just don't have the energy to get there yet. Transparons. Maybe.
0: Randallons.
1: That has a nice ring, doesn't it? Yeah,
0: Randolphs sounds pretty great. But uh, for the young people, <laughs> this thing was going to be built in Texas. And it was going to be huge. Huge. <laughs> and uh, it was going to take a lot of electricity. In Texas, they don't talk like that, though. No, it's going to be big. <laughs> big. <laughs>
1: Well, I figured 92nd Street Y, it's Yoge, It's you. <laughs> actually, and I, I met someone. I, just, I was actually on a committee with someone who worked in Apollo, and he was from New York but lived in Texas, and he talked exactly like you were just talking. Like, sometimes it would be Texas and sometimes it would be New York. Jump and be, back and, and forth. It was really funny. Uh,
0: so if it's in New York, of course, if it had been built in New York, it would be the best. But that aside... <laughs> Uh, this thing, I just see young people in the eyes. This thing was going to be built. This was around 1983-5. Is that right? 1985? In the 1980s. Yeah, yeah. And it was decided that it wasn't a good investment. It was too expensive. And I just, I'll just tell you, as a science educator, and then I want your take on this, the physicists went to Congress, and they talked about what somebody would ask you, what are you going to do with this big thing? Or we're going to look for the Higgs boson. We're going to look for other particles that are outside of the standard model. There's currently, there are 12 particles plus Higgs, 13 total. Is that where we are right now? Right. And stuff like that. And congressmen and women just didn't get it. But if they said, we're looking for the next secret of the universe, then maybe that, you know, we would have gotten on board with that. Do you think another one should be built now? Another collider?
1: Oh, I do actually think another one should be built. I mean... You know, I'm not in charge of budget, and I don't know where it would be built. But I think there are, I mean, the reason I think that is there are questions that we just won't answer unless we do that. I mean, look, just like, you know, basically, I'm a, so let me just take a step back. I'm a model builder. I build models, and it, when they do these measurements, which are very difficult measurements, as you know, you want to have targets for what to look for. And so what you want to be able to do is take advantage of all those things you're looking for. So when you do dark matter searches, you want to say, what could a dark matter model look like? When you do particle physics models, you want to, what is a particle physics model? So that way you can say, this is what we expect if there's nothing new. This is what you have that's new. So the only way to test for these things is to have these machines that go beyond, to the place beyond where we can just see the standard stuff. And that's true for dark matter. That's true for the particle. So let me ask you this. So I think about
0: neutrinos.
1: Apparently you do.
0: Yeah, well, who doesn't? And so we have a big water-filled box, Mm -hmm. and we hope a neutrino will go through there and excite something that produces literally a light flash, a visible light spectrum flash. And now and then you find one, right? What would the machine...
1: Actually, this is Nobel Prize recently.
0: Yeah, yeah, because neutrinos turn out to have mass. What, uh, What would you do to find dark matter? What would this machine look like?
1: Right, so so of course, not surprisingly, that depends what dark matter actually is. So when we build machines to find dark matter, what we're really doing is testing what is the nature of dark matter. So one rather optimistic in my mind, but an optimistic assumption, is that dark matter, despite the fact that we say it's dark and doesn't interact with light, and we call it transparent on, or whatever you want to call it, maybe there's a tiny bit of light. Maybe it's diaphanous, maybe it's a diaphanous (laughs) on. And so it has a little bit of an interaction with light. If it has a tiny interaction with light, well, that means most of the time you wouldn't see it because it's so small you don't see it but again if you have a big enough fat if you like then you have some chance of finding it so there's something called direct dark matter detection which isn't looking for any type of dark matter it's looking for dark matter that has a tiny tiny interaction with light and those experiments are becoming more and more sensitive so that they can detect smaller and smaller what does the experiment look like a laser beam what does it look like well, it looks like a big vat. Basically, it looks like, actually it's basically the same as the neutrino detectors. It's very similar in spirit. Um, so you have these big vats that can look for low probability events. They're usually deep underground, deep underground to shield from cosmic rays. But they have to do a lot more to shield. They have active shielding. They have lots of ways to reject stuff. And by shielding, I mean, you know, you're looking for a tiny, tiny energy emission. You know, if if I if you touch that experiment, you have a billion times more stuff. Things out there, and even in the most optimistic dark matter scenario, when you, say you have touch, to shield all
0: that, touch the wall of the pool. Yeah, if you plant.
1: touch anywhere in the detector, if you just were to touch, so basically, it's that's just to say it's really, really sensitive, and you have to make sure you really screen out everything that could be standard and not dark matter. So they're designed, you know, they're brilliant experiments where you can not only have this very sensitive thing just because it's so big, but that you can reject things that are just standard stuff. So that's one type of dark matter that you can look for, this kind of dark matter that interacts with light a bit. And there's a couple of other possibilities for looking for that stuff. Maybe dark matter actually annihilates that with itself and turns into ordinary matter. So I talk a lot about the different models and the different ways that you can test it. And that's one of the things I think and, um, and another possibility is actually the Large Hadron Collider because of coincidence that if these dark matter particles have mass, comparable to the Higgs boson that can be t- produced at the d- detector, at the collider, rather, um, you have a chance of, of detecting it there. So you're saying you would produce dark matter in the... You can conceivably produce coll- it. Now, you say, like, okay, but we can't see it. But if you produced it and you don't see it, that itself is a measurement. Because, you know, we know energy is conserved. We know momentum is conserved. So if you produce something and find something's missing... In fact, that's the way we first found neutrinos. Because when neutrinos decay, when neutrons decay into protons... It looked like energy wasn't conserved. And someone was, you know, finally, someone, I think it was pauli said, come on, guys, energy is conserved. There must be just some particle we're not seeing. And the same thing could be true for dark matter. So I reflect on uh, my grandfather was born <clears throat> before
0: relativity was discovered. And uh, now, is there, is there anybody here who doesn't have a mobile phone, who's...
1: Yeah, no, no one. If well, you did raise your hand, we couldn't see you, anyway.
0: Sorry. No, I, I could, I could see. Yeah, so. Anyway, and then how many of you of us look at the phone literally to tell which side of the street we're on, <laughs> north or south? And so keep, yeah, keep in mind that you need to get that <clears throat> to, with the spacecraft in the global positioning system of satellites. You need both special relativity the speed of the satellite relative to the Earth, and general relativity, the change in time because of the Earth's gravity. Just to make your phone do what it does, and that was less than 100 years ago, can you imagine something that would change if you could detect dark matter? Let's say you
1: could really detect
0: this 33 RPM record in the Frisbee.
1: You know, it's funny because I'm always asked that, but, you know, the answer I would have is, you know, when Einstein developed relativity, and someone said, you know, are you, are you going to make, a, phone? Are you gonna make a, a GPS system in a phone? Like, I don't think, he, you know, he was a pretty smart guy, but I really don't think he thought about that. I mean, the fact is, we never get that right. I mean, when people developed quantum mechanics, do you think they predicted the electronics revolution? I mean, no one ever gets this right. When, when electricity was discovered, I don't think anyone knew that it would change the face of the planet within a, you know, a few decades. So I think it's a lot to expect that we should know And, you know, what we do know, however, are things like the fact that the World Wide Web came out of people at CERN trying to work together in different countries and talk to each other. It's just even just the methods that are used to analyze all this data um, has led to major advances. So we do know that just the technology that goes into it, the scientific advances, the fact that we have an educated public, those are the things we know for sure. But in terms of the practical applications, we don't know what those are going to be. So changing the
0: subject now, there have been, let's say, five major extinctions, mass extinctions. Mm-hmm. The ancient dinosaurs was a catastrophic... It's the
1: last one that we know about. Yeah,
0: that we know about. And uh, there is no evidence, no evidence at all that the ancient dinosaurs had a space program.
1: Actually, <laughs> it's just really funny when I was... So I, so I talk about this and, you know, so, so a lot of the evidence that we know that it was um, this, this impact was because it's um, the structure of rocks. And the only way that you could have the structure of those rocks, like this sort um, of shocked quartz, is by having an impact or nuclear explosions. And somebody I know who works on this actually said a radio interview where I said, "So was there a nuclear explosion?"
0: <laughs> yes, the ancient dinosaurs had nuclear. Weapons. <laughs> I, just, I just thought it was a big hilarious. conflict with the uh, yeah. the inland sea. Di- okay, that is fine. Uh, uh, you talk in the book. You talk about the nickel. In mm, Sudbury. Right. And that's a huge impact, impact right. crater.
1: Yeah, two million years ago. Yeah. So, um. Two million.
0: Yeah. That's not very long ago, as these things go.
1: Did I tell two million? Yeah. Two?
0: I think it was, pre- I think. Yeah, two I, million. I, I, there's no. nothing.
1: I think it was two nothing. million. Who was president? Um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I think it was two million I But could there's be wrong a lot of that. nickel.
0: There's so yeah. much nickel. How much nickel is there that the town? Uh, of Sudbury has a giant nickel out there. You can but,
1: go but, you know, it's for, for particle physicists, as you know, it's, and for people who like neutrinos, it's a very exciting place because there actually was a neutrino detector there. Because to, to, to find it, to actually collect it and make it economically viable, as you know, you build mines. So because what there was an impact, it concentrated the nickel so much it became economically viable to mine it. They built a mine there, and inside that mine, is not only just an act of mind, but it's also places where they have detected neutrinos, done studies on neutrinos. In fact, the solar neutrinos that won the Nobel Prize, I believe, were done there. And also dark matter detection experiments were there. And again, it's deep underground because you want to shield it from cosmic rays. So it turns out it's you know this crazy thing that there actually was a big impact there, and that's why they have this concentrated nickel. Every rock tells
0: a story, as the old saying goes. So people were looking, they found nickel, and this one thing led to another. So I say to the young people here, I guarantee you there will be discoveries made in your lifetime that no one's thought of. Things that no one's anticipated will come up. I mean, I had uh, Mrs. McGonigal in second grade. No, did you know her? She was great. She, told, <laughs> she said uh, the ancient dinosaurs were killed because they had small brains. And then the mammals took all their food.
1: I Actually, it's really it. funny. There's this, you know, when I was researching this, you know, obviously it wasn't essential to my particle because it was fun to research all the different theories people have for why the dinosaurs got killed. Because it was a heck of but a history, like, people. It was like the diet was bad or, you know, it was like the small brain theory. It's just really now, funny. They, they had allergies. Was gluten? <laughs> the, glo- is the gluten is what it was. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's like it really, they, it
0: really they don't like funny. it. So... Uh, This top card is kind of the whole thing. Um, Why does matter matter? Why should we care about matter?
1: And I will embellish for that matter. Um, Well, you're perfectly free not to care is the first answer. You know, I think, but I think understanding what the universe is made of is one of the most interesting things we can ask. Um, you know, it probably won't change, you know, what you have for breakfast tomorrow. Um, but I do think it it's really important, just for all the reasons we were talking about, to understand how the universe is put together. It might
0: change what your kids or grandkids have for breakfast. It really might.
1: It could, or at least how they're packaged. But, um, <laughs> no,
0: it could change a fundamental thing about... Uh, our understanding of the universe and physics and
1: transportation systems could be right, just like... But, but really, I'm not going to promise that. No, I, mean, no, I genuinely think to. that just understanding the nature of... Just understanding, you know, how did we get here? But I think also to, to backtrack a little bit, you know, just understanding all the amazing connections that lead to this earth that we have. I mean, it sounds kind of foo-foo, but it's not true. I mean, there's amazing connections that were necessary. And we have a very specific environment and a very specific climate. And you know, the planet will survive, but if we change things enough, a lot of life on Earth won't survive. And um, it's not clear how that will affect us in the long run. So I think it is important to have some sense of how all these pieces fit together and what was essential to get here. So you would
0: say we're in a sixth mass extinction?
1: I do think it's, it's likely. I mean, I can't say for sure, but if you look at the rate of extinctions of, for example, large mammals in the last 500 year, million years, you know, 500, 500 years. It's 16 times the rate that it was, you know, ordinarily. I mean, we're just really accelerating the rate at which species... And we just look at mammals because those are the ones we can measure. It's very hard to do the measurement. That's why no one can say for sure. We don't know how many species exist. We don't know for sure how many are dying out. But it's so clear that we are changing habitats in a way that's incompatible with many of the species of life on Earth. And it's hard to imagine that that's not going to have enormous consequences relatively soon.
0: Can we see evidence of the extinction event that killed the dinosaurs?
1: Yeah. So actually, I have a whole chapter about this. It was really amazing <laughs> because... Yeah, okay. This little She'll be chapter. signing. But, it, but it's really true because, um, you know, when I started writing the book, I mean, I had heard that, you know, we think that a big object, a meteorite, killed the dinosaurs. But, you know, it was like kind of like presented as somewhat controversial theory. It's amazing the strength of the evidence um, because, you know, not only... Have we, can we go and see the layer of the extinction so we can see the fossils underneath, the fossils above? We can see the structure of the rocks. We can see you know, the, lots of evidence that there was an impact. But, but because, and this is a great story in itself too, you know, the crater was found. I mean, there was no guarantee that crater would be found. So, you know, there was a proposal. There was a crater. And not only was it found, but it was the right size. But from the amount of iridium, you could figure out how big that crater should be.
0: The amount of iridium.
1: Yeah, the amount of iridium that was Atomic found. Atomic number? 77.
0: <laughs> okay. No, it is. Uh, um, so, and this, but, so iridium, but because we
1: found this crater, though, uh, we can actually do an incredibly accurate timing measurement and see that these two things happen, this extinction happened, you know, within 20,000 years of each other. So 60 million years, 66 million years ago, and we can do a measurement now to establish that those things happen within 20,000 years over each other. It's very hard to believe that that was a coincidence, given the massive destruction that can happen. And there's lots of evidence. I mean, once people began, once this theory was proposed, there were just many different sort of geological formations. So for me, it was a lot of fun to study all this geology and see all the different ways that we could actually identify that there have been. Do
0: you feel we do enough to avoid getting hit with another asteroid?
1: Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, So you know. Honestly, it's mostly, as a scientist, I'm very happy for us to study what are the asteroids that are out there. Um, you know, really, in terms of the actual dangers to the planet, yes, I mean, it would be bad if we get hit, um, you know. Most everything
0: those, that you know we're destroyed in an instant, yeah. But most of
1: those are, that's, <laughs> that's not going to happen for millions of years, most. I mean, the ones that are going to hit are going to be relatively small. And yes, they can do some damage if they do hit. But, you know, and we're talking, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. We're not talking tomorrow. But, um, but so they could do something. But I think there's many dangers that are more pressing. Um, so then we have to weigh, you know, just what we learn, how much we have to invest, what are the dangers we care the most about. Um, and I think, you know, it, so no, we're not doing everything we can do. But also I, don't, I actually don't think it's the most pressing problem Are we doing planet. everything we should do? We're not doing anything, everything we should do for anything.
0: Okay. <laughs> All right, this is a good one. Please talk about your Boston Globe op-ed. And oh. it continues. Excellent. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you. Um, so the Boston Globe op-ed was, um, was sort of this nice coincidence. So it's sort of roughly speaking about sort of empathy and sort of how we view science, but how we view social issues as well. And the fact that we tend to really see things from our own perspective. So just the sort of dismissiveness with which we view dark matter is because it's us that's looking at it and we see with light. I mean, dark matter is very valid. It's five times as much stuff. Yet we tend to think of it as sort of irrelevant. And not only that, but we see things like at different scales. You know, I've written these books about particles on very different scales. And, we tend to th- and when I say we, I mean other people. Of course, we don't. But uh, other people tend to think of that stuff as sort of less real because it's less immediate to them. It's not what you're detecting. Um, and so to really understand what things look like from that reference frame. You know, and so when I talked about dark matter, I used some analogies in the beginning of my book, you know, just to say, you know, there's bacteria in our body, there's ten times as many bacterial cells, but we just don't notice them. Yet they're essential to us, but we just don't notice them. And, you know, there's internet chat rooms we don't enter. There's just all this stuff that we just don't see in our daily lives that we know exists. And so dark matter is something that people are less aware of, but it's just as real. And it's just not something we see. So
0: following up, this is a good one. Since dark matter doesn't interact with other matter, could there be dark life?
1: There absolutely could, and I talk about that. But I just remind you that life is an incredibly, incredibly, incredible thing in the sense. So, you know, there's sort of life and then there's complex life. And so, you know, we should probably distinguish those. I mean, but... To get life requires an amazing amount of coincidences of stuff. And we don't know how life came to this planet, but one, it could actually be connected, as you know, to some of these asteroids and comets that have hitting, and I talk about the various possibilities. Um, but there's an amazing number of coincidences that have to happen. I'm calling them coincidences, but maybe there's a better term. So, yes, in principle, there could be dark life. But, it's, you know, life is never likely, but it could be possible. Do
0: you think it's likely that we'll find life on Mars, or evidence of life on Mars, or evidence of life on Europa? So when you say evidence, you mean reliable
1: evidence that we trust? I mean, like
0: we find stromatolites in Australia and uh, Colorado that are clearly bacterial mats from well, ancient so, times. Well, you know,
1: but we say they're clearly bacterial mats, but, you know, I've actually looked at my colleague you to show me some of the stuff. And some of them look pretty clearly like they are, and turn out they're not. And some of them look clearly like they are, and it turns out they are. So, you know, they're probably... There, I think that there probably is life elsewhere. I think it's going to be very, very difficult to establish definitively that it, where it is. and if, But we'll, we'll see. What would each
0: of you... What would you tell the youngest of science scientists out here to encourage a love of science?
1: I'll let you take that one first. No, but
0: you love it, right?
1: Yeah, but you talk to young people more than I do. Uh, <laughs> Well, I would just tell you, do it. I mean, what's more exciting than science? So I I think that's a great answer, actually. I think part of the joy of science is, you know, there's sort of two ways that it's presented. I mean, one is sort of, you know, the awe and wonder of the universe. And the other is just getting your hands dirty, or in my case, you know, doing theoretical stuff, doing math stuff, where you see things fit together and the joy of discovery, the joy of things fitting together. And I think, you know, it's just there's no way to describe it. So
0: you just dropped a phrase, which is one of my faves,
1: (laughs) on when, next
0: time you're on Mars and I hope you go up to the rovers, you know, like Mark Watney. You know who I'm talking about? The the character of the Martian. That's the name of the fictional character. Uh, And you go up to the rovers, and you're checking them out, in very small letters on the edge of the, uh, the test pattern for the cameras. It says, to those who visit here, we wish a safe journey and the joy of discovery. And that, to me, is that's what this thing's all about. And I would definitely say to young scientists out there, you mentioned how much you love mathematics. And when you say model, you're talking about a mathematical model, right? right? Be sure you get good at algebra. <laughs> no, and I'm not joking you guys. And, uh, here's, they've done a very compelling, very compelling studies. Algebra is, um, the single most reliable indicator of whether or not you will pursue a career in science. It's not clear that it's cause and effect, but the correlation is indisputable between people who pursue careers in science and, more importantly,
1: engineering. <clears throat> uh, and
0: people who do go on to do normal things. So,
1: and, and one of the things that um, is distinctive about algebra, as opposed to the math that you've studied before that, is that it really relies on abstract reasoning so, in a way that like just addition does not. So apparently so That's thinking, one of the things that's really interesting. Yeah, about
0: abstractly that. about numbers helps you think abstractly about all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And so my proposal, people talk to me about this all the time, is we should start having letters represent numbers sooner, like in fourth grade or so. Actually, it's really, this is just a
1: dumb joke, but... No, you know, bring it visiting, on. I was visiting Caltech and um, you know they were making fun of the series. So it was like the April Fool's issue mm-hmm. that they have with their humor paper. And, or their humor paper and they were making fun of the, th- of the series numbers mm-hmm. and they had this whole article how like there should be a TV program where people use letters to solve mysteries and crimes <laughs> and put them together to form like ideas you know just <laughs> or making maybe even fun words. Of the sort of yeah. making fun of the way that we view numbers as such an other thing <laughs> exactly so it was, it was actually pretty funny
0: <laughs> well here's, but here's the joke it's funny to us okay <laughs> or I think but <laughs> Suppose you were at a party, suppose you're in New York and you're just so hip, you're so hip. <laughs> and you're going on about this museum and that museum and this piece of art and that artist and what who said what to whom back in 1750 that led to the blood being, okay, whatever. And then you met, and it's very common to meet somebody, well, I never liked science, I didn't, I didn't really study science. It's very common. But suppose you met somebody at the party and said, well, I never learned the alphabet. You know, it was arbitrary. I just didn't really. And so, to us in science education, we want science in every grade every day. But that's a hard thing with all the other stuff that's going on. Now, that was a pretty straightforward question. Uh oh. But this is an easy one. Since the universe is expanding.
1: What is it expanding into?
0: There you go. <laughs> there you go. Done. Take your time. <laughs>
1: Because you guys go off on your multiverses, right? Well, some people do that. I try to prefer, I prefer things. To, I actually talk about the questions that we will understand the answer to because we can actually measure something and the ones that are just philosophy. But the answer is it's not expanding into anything. Probably most of you have heard this many times before. But, you know, we always think of something as expanding into something because that's what we see. But the universe is everything. And so the analogy that I use and many other people do is do you have a balloon? Imagine the balloon is the entire universe. I call it the balloon universe. You have a balloon that's the entire universe. And suppose you drew some points on that balloon. And you blew up the balloon. So forget that it's in a room. Imagine the balloon is the entire universe. Then those points are are going away from each other. They're growing apart. Just because we're blowing up the balloon. And in the same way, the universe is getting bigger. Space itself is expanding. It's not expanding into anything. It's just space itself that's expanding.
0: So let me ask you this. Along that line, you have a really nice... I thought, really nice turn of phrase or passage. When people, I just remember, I became a mechanical engineer. I'm a tinkerer, I like to tinker. But of course, I don't know if you, any of you guys are engineers, but it's all physics. It's just physics for years.
1: The physics it's physics middle, so you have to be careful. Like, yeah, yeah, well, reference. we recommend that, yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, you have to be careful if you want to mass produce it. Yeah, so, uh, but fascinated with physics and so with, um, astrophysics and so on. So what exactly does the term flat mean? Um, the universe is flat. The universe is inflationary. The universe has an R in the month. What does that mean? Has an R in the month? Yeah, well, there's something about oysters. You're supposed to eat them when there's an R in the month. So go ahead. Hang on. I'm, what I mean is...
1: Okay. So, so what I so mean fl- is... So flat you guys flat throw these terms around. So, yeah, so... Yes. Um, yeah, I know. We're so obnoxious. Yeah, Yeah, no, so It's cool. Okay. So what yeah. does it mean? So... Um, so to define um, space, to define how we measure space, there's something called a metric, right? So a metric is like a ruler, right? Because if I just said, I said, you know, we have to go two to get to the 92nd Street Y, you'd be like, two miles, two feet, two blocks. You need some units. You need a unit. And so one of the things a metric does is it gives you a unit. But the other thing a metric does is it actually tells you about angles. So it tells you what is the angle between two things. So if, for example, if I were to ask you, you know, so. so ah. So most of you, have, you know, probably heard that the sum of the angles in a triangle is 180 degrees. But, um, you know, I actually was visiting my cousins and I was talking to, like, the eight-year-old there and I said, well, you know, that's not always true. Like, if you have a sphere, you kind of... It's a flat, flat know, two dimensions. You know, so, right, exactly. So if you have a sphere and you add up the angles, you know, you could have three 90-degree things. And that doesn't add up to 180. Um, so one of the things that's telling you is about angles. That, so if it's flat, they do add up to 180. If it's not flat, it could be something bigger. And actually, it's really funny because he, he actually wasn't the best student, and apparently, it was really unfortunate because he got in trouble in school because the teacher said the sum of the angles is always one hundred eighty degrees. <laughs> and but he said no, this isn't true. So, Aunt Lisa,
0: <laughs> did you show him up an example? Yeah, I did. It's Where? A, I mean, just a sphere. You know. But well, a globe. Yeah. Everybody. Which is a sphere. Take, you take you go to the <laughs> yeah. internet. But you guys, I ain't joking. You go to. Uh, the prime meridian through Greenwich, England, and then you go to some other exotic place like uh, San Francisco, <laughs> and you can make triangles that have that have three ninety-degree angles on a sphere. Mm-hmm. And he would have been, he would have been either B in trouble or A having you know the greatest day of his life. Right.
1: So yes. unfortunately, the teacher did not. It was.
0: It was. He was in trouble. But yeah. anyway,
1: so that's what flat means. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay.
0: That's what flat means. Steady. Okay. <laughs> nice. Bill, Bill, steady, Bill. So the the balloon is so big that the angles between these solid, the, these um, great circle triangles are as though they're on two dimensions.
1: Okay, I'm, not, I'm going to make up a question because I don't know what you're asking. So I'm going to say this is a question. Good, okay, good, so good, um, So suppose I blow up a sphere really big, but then I do draw a small triangle on it. So I don't draw one of these ones with 90 degrees going through the prime meridian. So I draw a small triangle on it. Then it does look flat, because if I drew a small enough triangle, then it approximately will... The sphere add up. is big enough. But the sphe- if the sphere is really big and I do a small triangle, it would look like it's flat. And that's what cosmological inflation does. It's expanding the universe so that it becomes flat. So even though there could have been curvature, if you blow something up big enough and you look at a small region, and that's important to look at a small region, over the entire thing, you would see the same measurement you just talked about, where you have San Francisco in the prime, meridian well, what's and the small
0: how, how big is the small region in this example?
1: Well, it depends how accurately you measure the flatness, and that's actually one of the keys to all of science. You know, what the, your conclusions are, Depend on how accurate your measurements are. So it could be that fundamentally something is curved or not flat. But when you measure it, you think it's flat. I mean, after all, you know, the joke is, you know, the earth is flat. Because it does look flat when you look at it. Until you make a bigger excursion or go beyond the horizon you can see. So it is important how you're measuring things, what conclusion you're going to come to. So are you saying that in any direct, if the universe were flat,
0: in any direction I measured, I would only be able to detect flatness. Right. Right. And so that'd have to be pretty big. Yeah. But there's evidence that that's not how it is, right?
1: Well, right now, actually, our universe looks pretty flat. There's really no, I would say there's not evidence that it's not flat. I mean, it could be that it's not precisely flat, but it looks flat for now. So, But it's still accelerating in its expansion, right? Right, so there's different things that can happen. I mean, it is accelerating, but flatness is a different property that just has to do with what the fundamental way you measure the angles is. And so far, there's no evidence that we deviate from flatness.
0: Okay, one last question for me. Uh, When you talk about these perturbations, we have Big Bang, and there are perturbations that lead to structure Mm -hmm. that cause enough gravity to make things coagulate, whatever the uh, accrete. All right, <clears throat> are those perturbations analogous to ripples in a river? In other words, why would there be any ripple? Why would there be any anisentropy? Why would there be any, or is it just the nature of nature, that there's always a little
1: uh, so roughness? As far as we know, so, so what Bill's talking about is the fact that the universe looks like it started off completely smooth and what we call isotropic, the same in every direction. So it's homogeneous, the same everywhere, isotropic, the same in every direction. Yet, for structure to form, you need small deviations because if everything is just smooth and the same everywhere, nothing's gonna happen, you need small deviations. So where did those deviations come from? Well, the proposal is the very same thing that flattened out the universe, which was an exponential phase of expansion in the early universe called cosmological inflation. The very same thing that did that, at the end, actually there were what's called quantum perturbations that led to these deviations. So I'm not going to explain quantum mechanics to you, but it's not so hard to understand why this is. The idea is just that in different regions of the sky, inflation ended at a slightly different time um, because of sort of random effects.
0: Like the like, you can't know where an electron is or how fast it's going. It has a statistical property. Right. So there's a quantum Fuzziness to this thing. right in this
1: case is a quantum fuzziness and exactly where inflation ended It's a tiny tiny effect But there could be these tiny ripples that are imprinted in the sky at the end of inflation So
0: did they detect
1: those in Antarctica? <laughs> in Antarctica, yes, yeah,
0: they did for sure yeah. they detected the so ripples.
1: so we have. To, oh are you talking about the ones from inflation? No, those have not been detected, but what has been detected is a lot of evidence that is consistent with the theory of having these fluctuations that then expanded. God, it's so cool.
0: It's just so cool, it is. No, because it's fundamental, it's where did we
1: all come from? It is, it actually, I mean, it's true, and you know, the COBE satellite, which was like in the 80s, it was one satellite that measured the cosmic microwave background radiation very accurately. And really, the most amazing thing they found was precisely this fluctuation, this slight deviation in the radiation. And it really is sort of like an understated discovery because that really is the source of all the structure in the universe. These tiny, tiny perturbations is the source of everything we see today. So we are made
0: of the same stuff, the dust of exploding stars and other dust.
1: Yeah. So we are one way that
0: the universe knows itself, which I find just, it just fills me with reverence every day. If
1: you think the universe is thinking, which I don't. <laughs>
0: It's a hard one, but this one, I won't give me this one. <laughs> when it comes to these quantum fluctuations in inflationary time, if things were any other way, things would be different. <laughs> Lisa Randall, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.